0: And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Over the last 20 years, we've had an outburst of a new wave of attacks against Christianity and faith in God. It's sometimes called the New Atheism. And uh, it it seems to have come uh, into most gathered momentum in the uh, aftermath of the 9-11 destruction of the World Trade Center. And uh, my guest is Dr. Luis Marcos. Uh, He's the author most recently of Atheism on Trial, Lou's been a professor of English and scholar-in-residence at Houston Baptist University. He's delivered hundreds of lectures worldwide on topics such as apologetics, uh, the worldview of C.S. Lewis and Dante. He's also published Apologetics for the 21st Century and Atheism on Trial, Refuting the Modern Arguments Against God. Lou, good to have you back. It's been too long.
1: It has indeed been too long, Al. It's great to be back in these troubled times.
0: Yeah, well, did you did you notice too that this new atheism really seemed to come in the wake of the uh, world uh, the collapse of the World Trade Center uh, after nine eleven?
1: You know, it really did. I hadn't quite thought about it that way, but it's really been about a twenty year run. Yeah, and yeah. I, I really think that you know it, it threw people's faith so much that it gave these new atheists a sort of in to become the voice, right? In other words, you know, no longer are you going to turn to your priest for answers. Now you're going to turn to us. I mean, already they were telling us we needed to turn to the scientists, but now let's turn to these people that are not really scientists. I mean, they're educated, but they're somewhere between professor and pundit, and now suddenly they're going to be the ones that are calling the shots. Right. And one of the things that pains me, uh, Al, is when you walk into a bookstore, which may not be around much longer anyway. But you walk into a bookstore and you go to the religion section, right. and as much as a half of the religion section are new atheist books I, by Dawson or Richard Dawkins right. or somebody like that. I did it. I really, was there
0: Saturday. I I was actually there Saturday. I went to a a store on the west side of Ann Arbor, and I couldn't believe it. They had a—actually, in this particular store, they didn't have a very good religion section at all, but roughly half the volumes there were books by uh, uh, Richard Dawkins. His most recent one, I think, is Outgrowing God. Um, And it is—it's a shame. Uh, They had the uh, uh, scholar uh, Bart Ehrman, too— New Testament scholar who's a agnostic or atheist
1: it is terrible. It? And, and to to make it worse I, half of them are agnostics, and then about 25% of them are people like Bart Ehrman, yeah. who somehow people think are giving us the Christian position, <laughs> as if he believes any more than Bishop Spong or any of these right. other John Dominic Crossan or any of these people that don't really believe anything. Yeah. They may be, they're may they probably a worse danger to us, but we'll talk about them on another day. Yeah. We'll focus on the new atheists today.
0: Yeah, <laughs> let's let's take a look at that. You The book uh is broken up into four basic categories uh category one deals with the nature of the universe category two deals with the nature of knowledge category three the nature of god and category four the nature of man i know that you've uh appreciated uh ancient uh, greek roman mythology and that you've done some reading in norse and egyptian mythology as well uh you know, we don't. We tend to think of those uh, those gods and goddesses as kind of uh, you know boutique interests for us. But what were the civilizations like that were built on those concepts of god and goddesses?
1: But that that's the thing. People need to understand that you know what we worship determines what we believe and how we treat other people. And those gods, whether they're the Greco-Roman, the Norse, the the Egyptian, they simply cannot stand as a standard for moral, ethical behavior. That is why the, you know, what you might call the virtuous pagans, as Dante called them, people like Socrates or Plato or Aristotle or Cicero, Mm -hmm. you can see when you read them that they obviously don't know the God of the Bible, they don't know Yahweh, they don't have access to that, but they are clearly moving towards an understanding of monotheism, which not only means one God, it means that if there is a God, that God must be a standard of that which is good and true and beautiful. And without that standard, you you, you really end up with a kind of relativism, what the sophists were teaching, you know, twenty five hundred years ago. And so the kind of God we worship really determines our actions. Uh, in, in, our, in our own AD world, uh, a lot of Enlightenment thinkers, they didn't necessarily throw out God, but they gave us a God who has nothing to do except exist, right. what we call the God of Deism, the Enlightenment God. Mm-hmm. And in a world like that, in, for a while, Al, you're going to be able to hold on to real morality, but there is going to be a drift and we are seeing the upshot of that over the last several years where we're realizing that the god of moral therapeutic deism cannot hold us to any real kind of standard it's going to be wishy-washy and it's going to go away and even richard dawkins is starting to understand this <laughs> you know, he's starting to admit that wow i mean if you follow out his theories we, we could be in trouble right they're kind right. of waking up now but they're still not, of course, abandoning their atheism.
0: No, they. they uh, hopefully, he'll at least arrive at the idea that there's objective moral truths. If he can establish that, maybe he can draw near to the kingdom. I don't know, but
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I think he's realizing that you need them. I mean, right. pretty pretty soon, anything goes, and you know what we're seeing with transgenderism today is the ultimate proof that anything, anything, anything goes. Yeah. I guess Cole Porter was right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there's no standard, right? And I'll tell you, Al, the, 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 the re- real reason that impelled me to write this book, my original title was Nothing New Under the Sun. Mm-hmm. The publisher came up, and you know, how can you complain? Atheism on trial is really, really catchy. But my original vision was Nothing New Under the Sun. It, it annoys me, and I'm still seeing it today, that the new atheists, they write as if what they are <laughs> saying in their book is based on some kind of new research, yes, some new discoveries right. in science or history or biology or anthropology, whatever it is. And in fact, Al, there is nothing new under the sun they are recycling the same atheist and agnostic and deistic arguments that have been around for thousands of years. And not only have they been around for thousands of years, Al, they've been answered for that long. Sometimes by Christians, like Augustine or Aquinas, Mm -hmm. but a lot of them were answered by, again, these virtuous pagans, people like Plato and Aristotle and Cicero. So there's nothing new. And if if I could give you a quick analogy to this, what drives me crazy is when you you take a, a a class on bible right and they start throwing something at you like jpe you know even though that's been pretty much disproven yeah uh, this I whole documentary know, hypothesis still hold on to it. Right. yeah so sad right uh, but whenever they do that whenever they want to start messing with the bible what they do to the undergraduate and even the graduate is they speak in such a way as if to make you think that their theories are based on some kind of new research that you don't have access to. But if you really push it, you'll realize that, okay, maybe they know Greek and Hebrew, but you don't. But other than that, they're looking at the gospels. That you know, this whole you know, Bart Ehrman stuff, they're just looking at the same gospels you are. Right. But they want to intimidate you to think, ah, there's some new thing that you don't know about. Actually, all the new things, especially the Big Bang and all these other things, are actually pointing in favor of God. That's Most right. of the new discoveries are in favor of God, not against them. You you remember Al when the Dead Sea Scrolls came out, of course they took forever <laughs> to release them. Right. They kept telling, oh, this is gonna you know drive a hole right through Christianity and no once they were really translated and objective people looked at them what they told us was the gospel's presentation of first-century Palestine is accurate. <laughs> right, right.
0: No, exactly. You're absolutely right. There, there There's this popular—it um, happens time and again— uh, popular culture and the popular press will seize on some uh, new discovery, which is supposed to somehow shake the faith of the old religion, and uh, we're all supposed to be, you know, shaking in our boots, uh, wondering what the future will hold. Uh, what's funny is that the Big Bang— Uh, itself turns out to really serve the purpose of Christian
1: apologetics. Explain that to us. It really has, and we we need to remember that as the uh, evidence for the Big Bang was mounting, a lot of scientists that were atheists or agnostic, including Einstein, resisted it. Because right. they understood the theistic implications of the Big Bang, and they wanted what they called a steady state, this idea that the universe has always been here. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to believe it. You probably know that... that, uh, that um, uh, Einstein was resisting the idea of the universe expanding because if it's been expanding for millions of years, then it must have had a beginning. Right. And he came up with some people call it the fudge factor, some way to get around it. Uh, and later on, he he realized he was wrong. It was kind of embarrassing. Uh, but again, he was doing it not for scientific reasons, but for metaphysical reasons. Right. He wanted to be able to, and you know. It, it, Some of the new atheists have even admitted it now. They admitted that they don't want God to be true, so they can do whatever they want to do, especially in the sexual world when they were younger. Um, But the evidence is there if the universe has a beginning. And again, some people misunderstand the Big Bang as if the void was there and the Big Bang went off and filled it with matter. But actually, before the Big Bang, there was simply nothing. There was no void and there was no uh, matter. There wasn't even any time. All of these things happened at this incredible moment, bursting into being, and there must be something outside of the Big Bang to get it started. Now, as a lot of people know, as for instance, um, uh, what's the name? Um, Carl Sagan, not Carl Sagan, Stephen Hawking. You know, at first, with the brief history of time, in the beginning, he was one of the biggest proponents of the Big Bang. Right. And then suddenly, it must have struck him that, wait a minute. This is theistic, right? And so he starts coming up and others with this idea of the multiverse, which Mm -hmm. works great in science fiction, but it's really nonsense, right? And this is what, you know, I grew up in New Jersey, New York, uh, the word chutzpah, okay? And (laughs) the the new atheist has chutzpah because unable to explain how one universe came into being without God, they think they'll get around that by theorizing that millions of universes <laughs> came into being. Right. Now that's hootspa, Al. And <laughs> no. This is
0: great! No, that's... That is, you can't explain... So you can't explain this universe, so now you want to explain multiple universes. Uh, the same
1: problems are... You're going to have the yeah, same but problems. They have nothing. And if, if you start reading it, people like Stephen Hawking... We're actually saying, you know, John Lennox grabbed a hold of him and showed him how foolish he was, saying things like, well, all we need is something like the theory of gravity, and that will fix everything. Well, there's two problems. First of all, before the Big Bang, there was nothing, okay, right. including the law of gravity. Right. But, right. Even, but there's another, even bigger problem. He acts as if the law of gravity has the potential to create something. The law of gravity is just a measure of something that already exists. So the law of gravity is meaningless if there's no matter in exactly. in, in movement. So, But the fact that someone of the towering intelligence of Stephen Hawking would try to push that off
2: mm-hmm.
1: shows you a sort of desperation. Yeah,
0: end-of-life you know, desperation. Right yeah. No, I think that yeah, was his. Fa- yeah, his final, his final effort. Lou, hold it there. We'll come back. Continue the conversation. My guest, Dr. Luis Marcos, the book "Atheism on Trial," refuting the modern arguments against God. I'm Al Cresta. We'll be right back. Last week at AveMariaRadio.net's Poll of the Week, we wanted to know what Bible verses you thought were most misunderstood. The majority of you said, judge not lest ye be judged. 27% of you said, whoever comes to me and does not hate his family cannot be my disciple. And 9% of you said, wives submit to your husbands. Thanks to all who filled out the poll, and we look forward to you answering again this week our new poll at AveMariaRadio.net. Scroll down on the homepage and click Poll of the Week. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Louis Marcos. Atheism on Trial Refuting the Modern Arguments Against God. Lou, you mentioned uh, John Lennox uh, last segment going toe to toe with uh, Stephen Hawking. You know, I think many times uh, Christians don't realize that there are, in fact, Christian scholars out there. They're quite capable of taking on any of these uh, celebrated atheists, and uh, I know that that's been something I've enjoyed watching over the years.
1: I love John Lennox, and you know, it's funny, I, you know, there's a lot of great British apologists, but one of the things that drives me crazy is almost none of the British apologists will ever speak out against Darwin. They're just too scared, I guess. Only John Lennox will actually speak out. And I never could figure out why until I met him in person and realized he's Irish. Okay? <laughs> he's not English. He's Irish. He's got a fighting spirit with a great accent. And I'm like, yeah, you're ready to go out and smash him. and <laughs> don't care what they think about you. The guy's just great. And I, I know there's a new uh, documentary movie out where he's talking about, God, I can't remember the title right now with Kevin Sorbo. Uh, but just recently a new one came out. And th- they're there. I mean, we've got some heavy hitters out right, there. Right. And, um, what, what's his name, the one that wrote the Signature of the Cell, Stephen, um, uh, oh my.
0: Uh, Stephen, my Meyer. No, I'm talking about. Stephen Meyer.
1: Stephen Meyer, yeah. yeah. Stephen Meyer is yep. just, I, you know, I've, I've been you know, going back and forth on YouTube, and he's starting to get a lot of respect, even from thinkers that are atheists.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They're yeah. not
1: ready to be theists, but they're starting to say, you know, you've got some pretty good arguments here, yeah. okay? Yeah. And yeah. his arguments are not only based on the Bible. They're based on the science. They're based on what we observe and what is the best way to explain the evidence that we see and the evidences all around us. So intelligent design has really grown and it's exciting and, you know, they're, they're starting to, to force us to look at the complexity of the universe, yeah. right? And, you know, they have this idea of, of specified complexity.
2: Mm-hmm. Now,
1: what does that mean? There is complexity in the world that doesn't need intelligence. For example, certain crystals, which are very, very complex, right? But what specified complexity means is when you have something that is complex and you can link it to something outside of that thing itself. It's not just complicated, it's, it's a complexity that points outside of itself, so the uh, example that's often used is if you're walking through South Dakota and you see a rock and it's got a certain curve that sort of looks like a nose and sort of looks like a chin and, and you, you know that could have been the weathering of rock which is an evolutionary force it's it's blind and it doesn't have any it's not going anywhere mm-hmm. but you continue to walk and suddenly you see another rock that has four recognizably human faces on it and those human faces match up with four presidents and you realize it's Mount Rushmore and <laughs> it is a product of intelligent design right it has specified complexity and that is what we see not only on the macro level in terms of the fine-tuning of the universe, it's something we see on the micro level in our DNA and the molecular machines that are running everything. It's just an unbelievable complexity. And you know, Al, that first of all, what we call Darwinism today is actually against Darwin, because Darwin himself said, nature takes no leaps. Everything's got to be slow, gradual change. Well, we realize not only does that not work, there's not enough time. I mean, the Big Bang has now put a limit of, what, four and a half billion years for our Earth. That may sound like a lot of time. But that doesn 't begin to give enough time uh, for, for the kind of Darwinian evolution Darwin was pushing for, so they need a sort of punctuated equilibrium from Stephen Gould right. right. a mixture of Darwinism with uh, with, with, with basically uh, you know things that sort of leap uh, mutations that leap things forward now one once we 've learned about our DNA. And we realize that every time the DNA replicates itself, there is a possibility for mutation. Suddenly, the neo-Darwinian fusion jumps on that and says, aha, I've got it. Here's the funny part. Even if you could argue that the way our DNA replicates might give the possibility of a kind of evolution, the thing that could not have evolved is the DNA itself. Right. right? You, yep. you, you can't have DNA-driven evolution until you have the specified complexity and front-loaded information that's loaded yeah. into the DNA. Yeah.
2: At now, the very bottom,
1: there's
0: information. Yeah. At the very yeah, bottom it, of it, it there's is. information.
1: That's it, all the way down to the very bottom yep we get information. And of course, we should have known this because if anybody sits down and reads Origin of the Species by Darwin, you'll see that the most common analogy he makes, the sort of running analogy to explain things to us, is breeding of animals. Yeah. But the breeding of animals and plants is intelligent design. It's, it's driven by a human mind that not only understands the complexity, but has an endpoint—a telos, as the Greeks called it, towards which it's going. And so, again, it, it, it drives me crazy when you read Richard Dawkins because he, all, all of these people—well, you know, David Attenborough when he talks about animals—he shows you all this unbelievable Beautiful. design and yes. complexity, yep. and then always comes the punchline: of course, this is just the appearance. Of design, <laughs> <laughs> I love. I've I mean, always loved did, that. Yeah, and they take it back. It's really crazy, but but again, we, we need to understand as Christians that the science is really in our favor. The more we understand, and and it started with the the number crunching cosmologists when they started looking at the evidence and realized that you know statistically it, it's just impossible. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the statistical possibility of this happening is like throwing a dart and hitting one atom in the universe, right? right? And, right. of course, you have to keep doing that again and again. It just doesn't work. And I don't know. I, I I kind of get tired of this after a while. Well, it's
0: gone on. It's, yeah, Lou. I mean, yeah. I remember back when I was an undergraduate, uh, Murray Eden at the Wistar Institute was already arguing that mathematically speaking, it was impossible to reach the level of complexity we've got in the visible universe today, uh, given the amount of time that was being specified for it. And uh, so, <laughs> that's that's a long time ago when I was an undergraduate. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, and yet you. You continue to hear. I mean, the Christians make the case for uh, you know this uh, specified complexity or irreducible complexity when it comes to biological systems. We talk about the um, the extraordinary unlikelihood of a life affirming uh, universe uh, and, or especially a life affirming planet. And uh, it's it's on the face of it, it's darn impressive, but. For some reason or other, there seems to be a decided refusal to accept what to most, you know, commonsensical people uh, indicates design. They call it the appearance of design. Well,
1: uh, you know, show me. we we, (laughs) We have to break ourselves. We've been sort of brainwashed to believe, we've brainwashed ourselves to believe that science is necessarily objective. Okay? And well, 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 scientists are not objective. Okay, scientists also, and I say an, an agenda, but I'm not talking politically here. They have an agenda in that they don't want the theism to be true, right. because they don't want to be accountable. Yeah. Like most people, we don't want to be accountable. We want to do what we want to do. Uh, that's why I love, of course, C.S. Lewis says that that's why the best religion of all is pantheism, the idea that sort of everything is God. And the reason that is the ultimate wish fulfillment, as Freud would say, is if you have a universe that's God, that means that when the sun is shining and everything's beautiful and you're all happy and you look up and you just want to thank somebody and celebrate the universe. But then, when you want to do something really low and questionable, then it's nice to know that the universe really doesn't care. <laughs> right? So we, we've got this. But I'll tell you, I, I really think, as I look back in my book, that the most important chapter on my book is the chapter on Marcionism. I'll explain what I mean by that. Right now... The new atheists, the people, they know that they're on slippery sand. They they know that the science is going against them. More and more that we learn about history and archaeology and all these things, more and more it's going against them. They're painting themselves in the corner. And that is why, Al, I believe that over the last 10 years or so, the argument they fall back on again and again is God is, is evil, right? Yeah. That, that famous or infamous paragraph in um, in um, The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, where he levels at God every name in the book, racist, sexist, homophobic, filicidal on and on and on. And, and of course, there's, he's speaking specifically of the God of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that's the only way they can get by now. They keep falling back on the conquest of Canaan, right, right. or the flood. And so, okay, maybe there is a God, but he's a genocidal maniac, right? right?
2: right.
1: Now, they fall back on that because it's got an emotional power to it, mm-hmm. and it allows them to edge their way out. See, it used to be that if you wanted to avoid Christianity, you just had to find a Christian who was a hypocrite, and then you could get out of it and say, well, if this is Christianity, it's not true. Now they've sort of, that's not working anymore, so now we're going to just look at God himself, okay? This God of the Old Testament. Now, here's the thing that's, that's, that's amazing, Al. That argument that basically... The God of the Old Testament and the New Testament are totally different gods. That the God of the Old Testament is this angry tribal deity zapping people, just nasty, well, the, 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 what does he say, the most unpleasant creation in all literature is what Woodbracken what right, says, that's right? right? That's right. The and then the New Testament God is the God of love. Jesus, meek and mild, how sweet, all that sort of stuff. You know, suffer the little children to come unto me. All right, whenever they say that, they have this look in their face like they just invented that idea. Oh, I just, I just real, like, 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 um, who, the Hill song, that that crazy guy decides to go, he's like, oh my gosh, I just realized that hell is a nasty idea. We Christians really believe it. I mean, it's right. unbelievable the things they say. Right. Or one of, the, one of my favorites is the modern uh, fight over the problem of pain, of theodicy, kind of goes back to when Voltaire, reacted to the um,
0: Lisbon, when, earthquake.
1: Lisbon earthquake yeah. 250 years ago. And it's almost like he said, oh, look at that. Now I can see God is not a nice guy. As if there was never a natural disaster before. <laughs> These people are crazy. I mean, what, what are you talking about? Okay, <laughs> let, let, me, let me come back. So this idea, this, this desire to split God into Old Testament, New Testament, angry, loving. Uh, it's not only in William Blake 200 years ago, it's in one of the first great Christian heretics Right. A bishop named Marcion. And we're talking about eighteen hundred years ago now. Al. This is this is this was one of the, the earliest and, and most dangerous heresies uh in the early church that had to be fought. And that is exactly what Marcion said. He basically threw out the Old Testament. And right. when we come back, maybe we'll talk about the answer.
0: <laughs> we will. My guest, Dr. Louis Marcos, Atheism on Trial, refuting the modern arguments against God. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Luis Marcos. Atheism on Trial, the name of the book, Refuting the Modern Arguments Against God. Before the break, we were talking about uh, modern Marcionism, uh Lou is quoting from uh, the celebrated atheist Richard Dawkins, who said, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, inf- infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, (laughs) pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's a great uh, string of uh, adjectives there. (laughs) Okay. Um, This is part of the old heresy, that the God of the Old Testament was somehow cruel and vindictive, uh, a lesser God than the God of the New Testament, Which is character? God, the New Testament, of course, characterized by love, forgiveness. Um, This is an old, this is an old, old heresy, which we're still dealing with today, although it's been dressed
1: up now in, you know,
0: supposedly scientific garb.
1: It, It is. I mean, it's it's really been around forever. And look, every one of us is a Christian. We we come to a moment someday when we're reading the Bible and we're like, oh my gosh these seem like two different gods. I mean, we all wrestle with that until we read it carefully, and right. we read a book like the book of Ruth, right. or the book of Jonah, and we see God's love for people outside the covenant kingdom of Israel. In fact, Or even Rahab and Joshua. Abraham, yeah, Rahab, Rahab, yeah. I mean, exactly. And Rahab is in the bloodline of Jesus. Rahab, uh, the harlot, uh, 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 Ruth, who's a Moabite, is not even a Jewess. It becomes part of the bloodline of Christ. We read in uh, the the calling of Abraham that I will bless you, God says, but so you will be a blessing to others. We see that. Jonah does not—the reason Jonah runs away is he doesn't want to preach the gospel to the um, Assyrians— because he's afraid that they will accept it and repent. And he knows that God is one of those annoying people who listens to people that repent. He wants (laughs) to see the Assyrians burn, right? Right. And so he runs literally as far away as he can, probably runs to Spain, a lot of people think, as far away as he can get, because he doesn't want God to be merciful. On the other hand, all you have to do is look at the way Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, or for that matter, read the book of Revelation, or for that matter, understand that nobody in the Bible says more about devils and hell than Jesus. Everybody has this idea that Paul invented hell. Paul actually says very little about hell. Paul's always talking about grace, right? Jesus is the one who talks about devils and talks about hell and spends an awful lot of time exercising demons out of people, so right there, we see it. But about 1,800 years ago, Al, there was a great church father named Tertullian, and Tertullian answered Marcion, and he tried to explain that part of the nature of our God is that he is loving, but he's also holy and just. And he is clearly a God who makes commands, and commands that come with punishments if they're broken. And if Marcion is correct then this poor, pathetic God is a God who makes commands, but has no desire and no power to actually execute those commands if we disobey Him. You know, what kind of God do you want? Well, Tertullian realized that what Marcion wanted is what we today would call a user-friendly God, or a lot of your listeners may be familiar with a book that talked about the religion of this generation is MTD, Moral Therapeutic Deism. They want a God that's there, that will affirm them, that makes them feel good about themselves, but he doesn't really get involved in our lives. You know, he's not like looking over our shoulder. He doesn't really care if we sleep around or anything like that. I mean, we're, we're, we're still fighting with this, but we need to understand that if God does not have the power and the will to enforce his laws, what kind of a God is he? He's certainly not a God that can save, and you know what? All of us, whether we're atheists or not, we see injustice in the world and it angers us. But if Marcion is right, and if Richard Dawkins is right, then this God of ours has neither the power nor even the desire to end injustice right. and bring injustice. We just have to keep what kind of a God do you want? You know, we what become more of a moral God you than
0: God. Right, yeah, we're more moral than God as well. That's the assertion,
1: <laughs> and I, I really do think this. This kind of just struck me as a moment of revelation as I looked at this generation, and I'm thinking, what's the problem with this generation? Well, again, the two big issues for young people: one is, is the whole sexual, the gay, the transgender, but the other one is this again, this angry Old Testament God. Uh, you know, uh, how could he, you know, kill the Canaanites and all that stuff? Well, here's the thing what it does is a lot of times it makes young people and the the theologian professors that are teaching them well maybe joshua's not really inspired okay now this is really dangerous al okay there it's going to make you start question the scriptures but it does something even worse than that. Here, here I am, a Baptist. I'm going to tell you there's something even worse than doubting <laughs> the Scriptures. Can you imagine that? Okay. So, because I'm in trouble, right? I don't have a Pope, right? <laughs> <laughs> scriptures, I'm in big trouble. That's
0: right. That's all you've me got. got me. That's <laughs> all
1: you've got. That's all we've got. Okay. So, so hey, I, when I say this, I really, I really mean it, right? Even more dangerous than young people questioning the authority and inerrancy of Scripture is what it is breeding, is a generation of people who think they are more moral than the God of the Old Testament. Right. And that is the sin of pride. That is the worst sin of all. That is the sin of Satan himself. And all the adults are helping to breed this incredibly destructive, way not only destructive of Christianity, but destructive of society. Right. These young people think that they're more moral than God. and. It, 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 it's, again, it, it, it's very, very dangerous, and I that it's, it's really, really funny, because th- things like hell and devils that people don't want to talk about, the, the traditional way of getting rid of that is just saying that was Paul's idea. But as I said a moment ago, no, Jesus is the one who speaks about judgment. Jesus is the one who goes beyond using the word Hades to speak of hell and starts using the word Gehenna. Right? A lot of us know that was a, a, a trash heap that was continually burning. It's right. the place where the worshippers of Baal would pass their children through the fire and sacrifice them to this horrible uh, idol deity. Right? And that's the, the word that Jesus himself uses more than anybody else, Gehenna. So this is a God of justice, right? And here, here's another. It's just, it's just a small little thing, but it's so true. If somebody says to you, there cannot be a God because there's so much injustice in the world, your response is, if there was no God, you would not know that the world was unjust. The only way you can know the world is unjust is if you're measuring it against justice. Some standard, right. If your God is only a meek and mild God that doesn't want to get in anybody's face, then he cannot be a standard of justice, because he's not even willing to uphold justice. He just, oh, there, there, everything's fine, okay? So... (laughs) The the funny thing is that these people that are morally outraged against the God of the Old Testament don't really understand moral outrage, because they don't really understand justice or holiness.
0: No. Well, I think that's that's true. They don't enter deeply enough into the the whole biblical narrative, the whole storyline— uh, that's why they miss uh, that even in the the, the, the much uh, despised book of Joshua, where you've got the conquest right. narratives, that even there you've got a God who is making room for Rahab the harlot uh, from outside the covenant people, and he's always right. interested in those who are marginalized. Um, but uh, do, you, do you think, I mean, you're working with uh, undergraduates and students all the time, do you think that there is less of a, a willingness to uh, ask these d- deeper questions than a generation ago? Are our students more flippant today, more self-satisfied?
1: I, I think so. and I think, you know, it's just as long as everything goes well. I mean, it's funny now. this makes me reminiscent for the, for the hippies. Yeah. Because at least the hippies were really trying to seek something that's authentic and they almost like early christians were willing to give up all their creature comforts to seek the authentic right and 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 and, you know i I don't you know i don't condone their sexual sin but i think they were really trying to seek after intimacy rather than mere self-pleasure which is what has happened today it's merely about a sort of narcissistic self pleasure I don't want and what what's really bad is that a lot of these kids are going along with cancel culture, not necessarily because they're super progressives, but they also don't mind canceling things because they don't like to be upset, they don't like to have anybody disagree, and so they're willing to have those voices shut down, not necessarily because they're progressives or Marxists or anything, but because it will allow them to just smile and be happy and not have to face things. And we need to... You know, let, let me just read you something from Tertullian. This is sure. just amazing, okay? This, this could have been written today. This is what MTD is about. This is Tertullian, 1,800 years ago. He says with great irony, he says, a better God has been discovered by Marcion, a God who never takes offense is never angry, never inflicts punishment, who has prepared no fire in hell, no gnashing of teeth in the outer darkness. He is purely and simply good. He indeed forbids all delinquency, but only in word. He is in you if you are willing to pay him homage for the sake of appearances that you may seem to honor God for your fear he does not want. Could that not have been written I, yesterday?
0: Yeah, really. <laughs> I mean,
1: <laughs> and it's
0: dripping, dripping with sarcasm.
1: <laughs> it really is. Oh, he's being, yeah. he's sarcastic. You know, this is the guy that can be tough. This is the like the guy who gave us that great phrase: "the the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church." He's a right, pretty right. tough dude, right? Uh, <laughs> and and uh, but but I did. He sees through it right away. And again, because we don't study our church history. We have to keep fighting the same old heresies. Right. You know, the, right. the, the famous book, The Da Vinci Code, that's, that's fighting along with something called Gnosticism. Right. You know, the Church decisively did away with that 1,700 years ago.
2: Mm-hmm. but
1: Because we don't know our history, we don't know our creeds, we don't know our Church councils, we're just fighting the same old argument again and again. And you need to understand that Marcionism often goes hand-in-hand with Gnosticism. And in Gnosticism, what you have is this belief that creation is itself the fall. Not God created the world good and said it is good, said it is very good, and then we disobeyed and fell, but that creation itself Mm -hmm. is a fall. That some lesser deity, that they often link to Yahweh of the Old Testament, that some lesser deity created the world that's but right. matter is bad and matter is evil right i know in your program you're in chesterton here right <laughs> here, here's what chesterton says he says well, one of the things he loves uh, in people that attack the catholic church he says in the same breath they will say we don't like you catholics because you tell us that the body is inherently evil and sinful that's so negative we don't like that and another thing we don't like about you is you persecuted those poor Gnostics <laughs> <laughs> now, do you see the unbelievable hilarity of this, yeah. okay? Yes. it is the Gnostics who taught that the flesh is evil and inherently fallen right. and, and bad, and sexuality is inherently bad and making babies is really, really bad, right. okay? Right. so, th- that's not what the Church said, that's what the Gnostics said, and that's why the Church did have to c- c- de- declare them heretical <laughs>
0: Lou, great talking with you again. Uh, we will pick up the conversation in the future, okay? I really yeah, enjoyed being with you today.
1: I'll get back in touch with you.
0: It's been too much time. All right. Luis Marcos, Atheism on Trial.